Today starts Prelude to Revival. It's a big deal. Every four years, here we go. There's been seasons in the history of the church where revival and renewal have started with a serious return to God's word, filled with prayer, worship, and even evangelism to the glory of God. And these are actions that tend to come before revival. And they're called to a prelude to revival. And I, I'm praying for your renewal this week personally and corporately. As many of you know, I've been ill for a while. And I, I don't know what's going on physically. The doctors tell me what's going on. I'm trying to work through all that. And I feel like, uh, you know, the enemy tries to attack me as well. I really have a message I want to preach this morning. I don't know how far I'll be able to go. I've got a recording to stick up if I can't make it all the way. But I am, I'm really pumped. And I want you to turn to sermon I've been thinking about for months for today and look at Psalm 73. Go ahead and turn there. Psalm 73. Psalm 73, and I want you to look at verse 25. I'll put it up for you. Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That is a statement right there of revival. That is a statement right there of renewal. Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Revival, renewal, right there. Right there shows that God and God alone is enough. No matter what's going on, God and God alone is enough. This verse became my my life verse, my last year of graduate school, as I faced an uncertain future. Last year of graduate school for me was the last year of seminary. I had no job lined up. Anybody with me? Yeah. It was in the fall, so I had no prospects of marriage. Yeah, I know a lot of you are with me on that one, right? Um, and I was worn down and depressed. Yeah. Anyone? Yeah. So I had this verse on my wall, and I desired to live in this verse. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you? That's where I want my heart to live, and that's where I want your heart to live, in the utter sufficiency of God, that no matter the good in your life, the bad in your life, that God and God alone is enough. What is it going to take to get your heart to live in this verse, to actually believe this? What what is it going to take? Well, surrender through struggle. Surrender through struggle. The psalmist who is saying this went through a great struggle to come to the point where he could actually say this. And I believe that there are times that we go through times of trials, times of sickness and illness, uh, times of seasons of doubt and problems and great pain. And we have to get to a point where we surrender to God through struggle, even through sickness. And we say, whom have I in heaven but you? And on this earth, pfft, I just got you. It's all that matters. Body may be falling apart. Relationships may be falling apart. But I have you, and that's all that matters. And we're going to watch the psalmist go through this surrender through struggle this morning as we look at the whole Psalm 73. little setup here, right? Let me set this psalm up for you in one sentence. Psalm 73 was written by a worship leader named Asaph in King David's court. That's who wrote it. Even worship leaders have struggles. Even spiritual leaders have struggles. And what follows is an honest assessment of what happened to Asaph and how he did this surrender through struggle. Now think about this psalm in two different parts. Think about it in, uh, in two halves. Disorientation, verses 1 through 16. And then reorientation, verses 17 through 28. 
So let's start out with disorientation. Verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now it's clear from the outset that the psalmist is rooted in the reality that God is good. Not only to Israel, but all those who are pure in heart. Those who are all in for God. But the reality of what that goodness is supposed to look like almost tripped him up. Look at verse 2. He says, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He looked out and he saw the wicked and he saw the arrogant and they were prospering and it made him envious. I want to make sure you understand what's trying to trip him up here. He believes that God is good to those who are good to him. But when he looks up, he looks at all the people who are bad to God and he sees them prospering. And it almost tripped him up and made him lose his faith. Because he was basically, let me just tell you, he was struggling with, let's, let's just, you know, he was struggling with envy. Envy was killing him. Envy is the last thing any of us want to admit to having. I have envy. <laughs> you don't want to admit that. And what is envy in a way you can explain to kids so they'll understand it? Well, this past week at our, at our house, I'll, I'll try to explain it this way. Um, we've been having a lot of loose teeth. My 10-year-old lost a silver tooth. By the way, can you get any money for those silver teeth? Can you? I'm here to the silver exchange. Anyway, and then uh, my 6-year-old lost her second front tooth. And then my 5-year-old has his first loose tooth, loose tooth. A lot of exciting stuff in our house this week about teeth. But I read this story about uh, this tooth fairy, this guy, uh, he used to give, well, he, the tooth fairy used to bring his daughter a dollar. Um, and she was so pumped that she would get a dollar for each tooth loss. It's a lot of money. Until she found out that her friend got five bucks per tooth. I'm going to start losing teeth at that, at that rate right there. That's pretty good. And she was distraught. And she's like, Daddy, why, why, why? It's not fair. And, and the dad's trying to figure out an explanation for his daughter. And, and, and he doesn't know what to say to her. And she says, Daddy, Daddy, i got a plan. Maybe we can find out which tooth fairy they use and switch to theirs. That's envy. Here it is. Envy has been called the sideways glance. You're doing fine. You're doing just fine until you see what someone else has. Here's some um, questions, some diagnostic questions that get at your heart. Uh, do you tend to stew on the idea that some people have blessings you don't think they deserve? Are you prone to judging people according to their appearance? Do you often size up other people in the room measuring how they compare with you according to appearance, stature, or position in society? Are you nagged by a constant feeling of discontent? I am. Envy is evident in my life when I turn sideways. Look, here, here, here's how I do it, okay? Look, I'm fine with my house in Skokie. It's, it's a great house. I'm fine with it until I watch Chip and Joanna Gaines on Fixer Upper. And once I start watching this show and what they can do to homes, I'm like, can, can they live with us and do that to our house? HGTV, ban that. It makes you envious. 
I'm fine with my 2005 minivan with 150,000 miles on it until a Tesla drives by. I can fit my family of eight in a Tesla. I can do it. I can do it. I can figure it out. I love the ministry here at EBF. 13 years, best job in the world. Until I look at my peers and all their mega ministries. You see how that works? You're fine. You're fine doing your thing. Until you start seeing what other people are doing, it's that glance of envy, and it, and it could kill you. And the psalmist's situation is worse than yours. You know why? Because his envy was theological. He believed God is good to those who are good to God, and he looks out, and he sees all the people that are bad to God, and they're prospering. What is up with that? His understanding of Scripture was very simplistic. God is good to those who love him, and he is bad to those who are bad to him. But if we read the Bible, and if you live your life, you know it doesn't work like that. Believers sometimes in this world suffer, suffer greatly. And a lot of this suffering is not resolved until we're in heaven, and people who don't know Jesus can be prospering, prospering greatly. And that's what he's dealing with. So he goes down this road of envy, and it's ugly. So you're going to go with him? Let's go with him down this road of envy. First, the prosperity of the wicked. Look at verse 4. He says, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Uh, do, do you see how his perspective is off? He's like, they don't have pain. They don't have problems. They don't have trouble. And they even die peacefully <laughs> without violent death. In fact, they have a life of ease, and their bodies are fat and sleek. That They're eating out a lot in these expensive restaurants. Basically, they are carefree and full. That's what he's saying here. They are carefree and full. And not only are they carefree and full, but they are violent and arrogant. Look at verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. <laughs> These are the arrogant ones, and they wear pride as their necklace, along with clothes that are violence, as their eyes are fat with their fullness, so their hearts overflow with foolishness as they are violent and arrogant. Are you seeing this now? He's looking out. He's seen all these enemies of his, evil people prospering, carefree and full, violent and arrogant, and they are also basically cursing God. Verse 9. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts to the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge of the Most High? <laughs> they're violent and arrogant in their speech. And actions, they're against the world, uh, and, and they turn to God and basically say, what are you going to do about it? So even the wicked know that they are prospering, and they look at God like, well, like you can do something about it. What are you going to do? They're carefree and full, violent and arrogant, all the while cursing God, yet they prosper. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, 
always at ease, they increase in riches. <laughs> what a simplistic assessment, right? <laughs> the, 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 this, these, these wicked are causing him almost to lose his faith, to, to slip and stumble away. So he looks at the wicked prospering, and he sees his, he's trying to do the right things. He's trying to live a holy life. And he's like, if the wicked are prospering, and they're being wicked, and I'm trying to be holy, and I'm not prospering, then what is the point of holiness? You ever said that, said that before? What's the point of living a holy life? What is the point of holiness? That's what he says. Verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's like, I've kept my heart clean, but what's the point? If the wicked prosper and I'm not, then what's the point of holiness? You ever said that before? Like, uh, for, for if, you ever, if you're a woman, you've been trying to get pregnant, you're not able to get pregnant, and then you see a woman, all she does is complain about her kids, and she gets pregnant again, and you're like, what's the point? I'm crying out to God every day, and I'm not getting pregnant. What's, what's the point? And what about if you're, if you're a guy in here and you, you, you're, you're living a life of purity, you want to get married one day, but you're, you're kind of discouraged, you're trying to walk in holiness, and then you see this guy, he's openly lusting after other women, he's, he's deep into pornography, and then he's getting engaged, and, and, and you're still single, and you're like, what's the point? And if at work, if you're doing your work with integrity and you're trying to seek the Lord in your work and, and then you see a dishonest person get a promotion and you, you're stuck in a job in which you were overqualified. What is the point of holiness? Now he's just depressed. He is depressed. Look at verse 14. For all the day long I have been stricken and, and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. If this were written by someone from EBF, it would sound like this. Oh, i got to get up again today. My days are so depressing. I'm going to get on the train. Yes, I'll go to the city and i got to go to work. I'm so, so depressed I want to go to my ethos community and I want to share my feelings with people there, but if I tell them how messed up I am, then it may mess with their faith. So I don't want to tell them, but I just want to, I'm just done. I am totally done with this life. It's not working for me. I'm so discouraged. I'm just done. And maybe that's some of you. You look around, you see people prospering, even some evil people are prospering, and you wonder why you're not. And if you're on social media, you know that makes it worse, far worse. Some of you are becoming bitter on Twitter, right? So bitter on Twitter because comparison is killing you. Now, hold on a second. Don't put up the next slide. Um, I want to share with you a Christian book. I do this. I just do this with the adults in here. I don't like to say this word. But there's a Christian book I'm about to show you. I think it, maybe it was written about your life. All right, here, here's the name of the book. Go ahead and put it up. When Will My Life Not Suck? That's a Christian book. And you're like, oh, they wrote a book about me. Right? Because that's what you feel like. And if that's where you're at, that's where the psalmist is at, that's what's going on with him. But if that is where you're at, Honesty 
is a great place to start. No one wants to admit to envy. You'll admit to a lot of other crazy things, but no one wants to admit to envy. It's one of those sins that's not attractive at all to admit. You're not going to go to your ethos and confess your envy. But be honest. It's time for you to be honest. If you've got these envy issues, and it's time for you to be honest. But don't just stay with honesty, okay? It's something, you have to, it's something you also, something else you have to do. And it comes to this time of reorientation. This is the best part of the psalm. It starts to change. Now is a reorientation. We have the turning point. Up to this point, what's the psalmist been doing? What's Asaph been doing? He's been doing the sideways glance the whole time. But now he gets reoriented. Here is the turning point. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So, so far he's been doing this, sideways envy, sideways envy. Goes into the presence of God, and I guess you could say he does this. He looks up. And everything changes. As he hears from God's word, he worships with God's people, his whole perspective changes. And I'm telling you that you will not get up until you hear from God. You may think you can turn this thing around on your own. You can't. You've got to hear from God. Back in the 80s, there was this funny commercial of this old lady who fell on the ground, and she would say, Help! I've fallen, and I can't get up. And as high school students, we would always make fun of her uh, on TV. Uh, It's a commercial. It was a commercial for, um, like, when older people fall at home on their own, they can say, help, I've fallen, I can't get up. And then this, somehow this monitoring system would hear them and send an ambulance. Well, it was all funny, and we make fun of that in the 80s. But in the 90s, when I took care of my grandmother, it wasn't funny at all. Because I got her one of those systems. And it had um, upgraded by then. Uh, she had a panic button around her neck. So she had it around her neck, and she could just push it. So when she falls, she could say, help, I've fallen, I can't get up. Or she could push the panic button. Okay? Here's the problem. My grandma would fall and then do nothing. She wouldn't say anything. She would totally forget she had the panic button around her neck. She'd lay there for hours, come in the kitchen, home from school, Grandma, what are you doing there? She pushed the panic button. It, then we'll come, the ambulance will come and get you. You see, many of you have fallen, and you're thinking, oh, I can just kind of just fall and somehow I'll get up. You will not get up. Your perspective will not change until you hear from God. It won't change. You can't switch it on your own. You have to hear from God in his word to get you up. And I'm thinking, I'm wondering, that may be the point of this whole week, to wake some of you up. You've come in here and you look nice, you look great, but I'm telling you, you are on the ground and you have a panic button around your neck and you're just not pushing it. That's what this week is. Push, 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 push. Help me. Get me up. Hear from God's word. Get perspective with God's people. If envy's been killing you, you've been distracted from the Lord, now is the time to look up and hear from God. 
And that's what he does. He hears from God's word and he, he thinks, oh, oh, I see it now. The wicked are prospering now, but they're not going to prosper later. His perspective switches. Look at verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Look at verse 27. Jump to verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. That's the perspective he needed. He's focusing on God. He's hearing from God's word. He's with God's people. And he says the wicked will fall to ruin. They'll be destroyed in a moment. They'll be swept away just like a bad dream. In God's presence, he's not doing this anymore. He's looking up. And he go, envy goes away. And he gets perspective on the wicked. And this causes him to repent. Look at verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. <laughs> that's confession. That's repentance. God, I was like a monster before you. I was stuck in envy and I was doubting your goodness. Do you see that? You ever come to God some days and say, God, I just want to confess my sin. I want to repent of being a monster. I've been trying to play God. I've been thinking you've not been good to me. I've been trying to just do my own thing and I've been envying the wicked. God, I have been like a monster before you. And it's repentance. And we remind ourselves that Jesus, right? Because monsters have to be killed, right? We want to kill monsters. Jesus took on your sin, became the monster in your place, right? And the wrath of God is poured out on him so you can be forgiven. So that we can sit here and repent of when we fall into these phases of acting like a monster before God and say, God, forgive me through Jesus' death and resurrection and may grace come down upon us. Grace forgiving us, giving us mercy today and all this week and forevermore. What I'm about to show you in the psalm is going to blow your mind. It's going to be one of the most encouraging things that you have heard in a long time, and I'm hoping that you will open your Bible tonight or this afternoon and be blown away again. One of the most encouraging things I've read concerning this psalm has to do with pronouns. Yes, pronouns. When the psalmist is disoriented and focused on himself and his envy, the pronoun that he uses in verses 13 through 17 is the pronoun I. Look at verse 13 real quick. All in vain, I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all day long. I, so on and on, between 13 and 17, he uses the pronoun I over and over again. I, 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 I. And if you're stuck in envy, it's all about the I, right? Then, in verses 18 and 20, when he reorients himself, the pronoun that is used is the pronoun you. Look at verses 18 to 20. So you get a little sample. Truly, you set them in surfy places. You 
make them fall to ruin, and on and on. So when he gets reoriented from his focus on the sides, he's like, you. So I disoriented. You, he's reoriented. But now the best part, here's the best part, here's the best part. In verses 23 and 28, the pronouns are going to be you and I. Oh, that's good. Not a single amen. That's good, right? You and I. Amen. That relationship's restored. Isn't that good? Look at it. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you receive me to glory. There it is. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is so good. Asaph sees that he, he has a relationship with God that is more valuable than anything else on this earth right now or ever. His flesh and his heart may fail, but God is his strength. He is abandoning this sideways glance. He has this restoration in his relationship with the God, and he's, he's fixing his eyes on, on the fear of the Lord in this life, and he, he's looking toward the prize of the future. And I want to give you a, a New Testament equivalent of this verse, if, if you want one. Uh, I think it comes from Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. And Philippians 1, 21 says this, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And you may wonder, why is death gain? Why would death be gain? Oh, because I get Christ face to face. And until then, I have him now. All of my sufficiency is in Christ now. And when I die, I get him face to face later. And that's, that's kind of what the psalmist is saying. Whom have I in heaven? But you, right? I can't wait to see. And yet on this earth, there's nothing I desire besides you. That is, that is amazing to say that there is complete sufficiency in Christ. No matter what is going on in your life situation, it can't be changed to take away the fact that you've got Christ. If almost you could repeat that in your head, I've got Christ. I have a tough job. I've got Christ. I have a, a tough uh, marriage. I've got Christ. It's been a really tough semester. Oh, the finals are coming up. I've got Christ. My health has been messed up for the last seven weeks. I've got Christ. I read a story about a guy who had a son with severe disabilities, and if any of you have children that have uh, disabilities or problems, it's tough. And during the early years of caring for his son, he started to become very bitter, and that's normal. If you're caring for a child that's difficult, it's normal. I mean, it's not good, but it's normal to become bitter. And, and start to look around at other people who don't seem to have the same problems with their kids and you become very envious. And um, he looked at others who seemed to have a life of ease and prosperity. And he believed that his son's disability had ripped that possibility away from him. It was a very disorienting times. And if you're going through that, maybe with some of your own kids, it could be very disorienting. But he found God to be his strength. And he was reoriented to the fact that God is his sufficiency. And he got to the point where he could say, I've got Christ. 
I've got Christ. I can go through whatever. I can lose whatever because I've got Christ. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on this earth that I desire beside you. And now he's at this point, he just wants to tell people. He wants to, I guess he wants to say, he wants to bring his personal renewal and turn it into corporate revival. Verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge. Here it is, that I may tell of all your works. You could almost say Asaph is evangelizing right now. He realizes that God has done a good work in him. He sees God's goodness. He wants to tell other people what God has done in him about God's goodness. And I want to kind of put this on you. If God has done a great work in your life, as he has saved you, if he has brought you into his family, let me encourage you this week to bring someone to revival. Back in the day when they would do these revivals, man, they would bring, invite all your friends and neighbors. And I'm not going to be too dramatic about it, but let me just say, bring someone. Wake someone up early in the morning. Say, let's go. Let's go. Bring them at night. You never know what God can do in their life, what he's done in yours. Invite someone this week to revival. Because I know what you want for yourself. You want personal renewal. You want to get to a point where there is a revival happening in your life, and you want that to break out in your church and in your friends who you love. But it starts, I think, with returning to this verse again in Psalm 73. Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. I want to live in that verse. For me to live is Christ to die is gain. And I want to live in this verse. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. And I know until we're with the Lord in heaven, I know, I guarantee you, this afternoon, I will do this sideways glance thing again. And I'm, I'm, I, need to, I need to just keep looking up. It's a temptation for all of us. There's this classic story uh, out in the Christian world uh, of a couple of missionaries who were coming off uh, of the mission field. And back in the day, they traveled by ships. And so these, these two missionaries are coming in uh, off the mission field, and they're coming on this ship with a political dignitary. And this political dignitary had like this hero's welcome, big party for this dignitary. And one of the missionaries, sideways glance, even missionaries can do that, was very bitter. And he said to the other missionary, that's not fair. Where's our welcome? (laughs) We've been out serving on the field, doing the Lord's. Where is our welcome? How does he get that? Where's our welcome? And the other missionary said, don't worry, we're not home yet. And while we're here on this earth, we will have trouble. And others will seem to be prospering. And we will say, oh, it's just not fair. But we are not home yet. And as we sojourn through this earth, we still have complete sufficiency in Christ and Christ alone. And so if you were doing this thing, you're doing this thing, come into the presence of God, look up, and root yourself in who he is and what he's done for you and his great love for you. That begins right now.
May your personal renewal and revival start right now. Right now. And if that, needs, if that means that you need to come before God right now and say, God, I have been a monster before you. I keep looking at everybody else, and I've become a monster, one big, bitter monster. If that's you, it's time to confess and find forgiveness in Jesus who took your sins on himself on the cross in a sense, was the monster that was killed in your place so that you can be received and forgiven. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would forgive the monster tendencies in me to constantly act like you're not good to me that you're good to other people, that you're blessing other people. Forgive me. I ask that you would forgive the, the bitter man in here or the envious woman in here. These things, Lord, as we look to other things and become so bitter, maybe it keeps us from seeing you, that we have you. And if we have you, we have everything, even in our sickness, even in our pain, even in our struggles. And we're going to continue to have these pain and struggles because we're not home yet. But we still have your full sufficiency. And Lord, I'm just, I'm just asking that you would work in our hearts and our minds this week. And every sermon that is preached, song that is sung, as we take communion, as we pray for one another, that we have complete sufficiency in you. You're all that we need. Do that work in us. From today, all week, do that work in our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.